before we go to God's word, church, it is amazing that God welcomes us to share our requests with him, is it not? We've said it before, it's amazing that we have the privilege to praise him. But that kind of makes sense to me. He's God and we're not. But that our God would relate to us as a father and say, as children, come to me honest and and raw and I want to hear your request and I'll actually follow through on what you ask of me because I'm for you so let's pray and ask our father for his help this morning father as a a group of us uh, just got back from a missions conference cross conference up in Louisville Kentucky this week. Father, we ask for the privilege of bringing the message of Jesus Christ to the nations. Father, I ask that we would be given the honor to see the gospel spread through our church, to see the gospel spread in this community, to see the gospel spread in Boynton Beach, to see the gospel spread in Palm Beach County. Father, to see the gospel spread in the state of Florida and the United States. And Father, we pray in particular this morning for the people groups, the nations, tribes, and tongues that Jesus has bought with his blood that have no access to the gospel right now. Father, we recognize that there are billions of people who will be born, will live, and die, and be sent to hell justly for sinning against you, who have never heard the gospel. You will not judge them for rejecting the gospel because they've not heard the gospel. But before you, their holy creator, they have sinned against you. And you will judge them forever in hell for that. Unless we get the gospel to them. Unless we as a church and as a family of churches around this world band together and say we've had enough of seeing unreached people groups live and die and never hear, the go- never hear the gospel. We've had enough. We want to bring the gospel to them. Father, would you use our church in this great enterprise? We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to be caught up in this great commission to bring the gospel, to bring the good news of forgiveness of sins to the nations. But Father, you have qualified us to join in this effort. Would we be faithful to do so? Would we have the privilege of seeing people groups hear the gospel for the first time and believe in your son, Jesus? And that there would be two or three or more gathered in the name of Jesus, and they would would come together and establish healthy local churches, Churches that would proclaim the gospel and would live out the gospel. Father, give us that privilege as a church. Father, we also 
ask for these new equipping classes that you've given us the privilege of having this morning even. Father, I pray for um, the corporate worship class that Keith Baker and Jeff Kelly are teaching. Father, I ask that you would bless their class. I ask that they would be able to speak clearly about how your word should order our worship together as a church, and that we would be directly blessed by that. For those who can go to the class, I ask that you'd fill up their class. That'd be fruitful. Father, I ask that you'd bless us indirectly for those who can't make it to the class, that we as a church would be able to more faithfully gather together as a church to glorify you. Father, for Bob Lutz and I, as we teach a class on how the gospel should influence the culture of relationships in our church, Father, I ask that we would consider the truth of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel together, and that the power of the gospel would transform the ethos, the, the feel even, of our church. As we consider this morning, that the gospel, the gospel message of forgiveness of sins and no more condemnation would produce in us a culture of gospel honesty, that we'd be honest where we have sinned, and that we'd bring our sin into the light, and that Jesus would be magnified, that we would not point to ourselves, but point to him as our Savior, that that would be the culture of our church. Father, I ask, even in this passage this morning, this hard passage in James 3, where we're going to see our sin, that we would bring that sin into the light, that we would look at a meek Savior, Savior who exemplifies meek wisdom, that he would transform us even this morning as we look at your word. Ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, when I was in seminary, I had this Hebrew professor who had this love for putting us on the hot seat. But let's just say I did not share his affection for this seat. <laughs> this was not a seat you wanted to be on. It was a seat of judgment. A seat where any chink in your Hebrew armor would be thoroughly exposed, scrutinized, thoroughly examined, and judged. Just picture Moses descending Mount Sinai and ripping into Aaron for making the golden calf, and that gives you a picture of what I had to experience in Hebrew class every day. With the whole class watching, Dr. Gentry would come up to me unannounced and say, Caleb Batchelor, you are on the hot seat. And then it began. He'd walk over to me and just inches away from my face with his big Canadian beard, he would grill me on all of my Hebrew translations and how I conjugated Hebrew verbs wrongly, and he would talk to me about grammatical rules that I didn't even know existed. It was terrible. He did this to all of us, and by the time it was all over and we dismissed as a class, we would be dazed and confused. 
not really sure where we were and questioning everything about our lives, our future, how to spell our names, <laughs> everything. One of the ways that Dr. Gentry would trick me into being on the hot seat is that he would ask me a, an innocent, seemingly simple question. He'd ask the class a simple question, and me and my pride, wanting to show how knowledgeable and clever I was, would raise my hand quickly. I know this one. And I would answer it. Bad choice. <laughs> Not smart. Why? Because he did what you probably expected him to do. He would take my simple answer and give follow-up question after follow-up question until he thoroughly exposed me as a Hebrew fraud, <laughs> showing me where I really don't know what I was talking about. I should add, he didn't do this to embarrass me. He wasn't doing it to, to shame me or the class. No, actually, this is one of the most loving men that I've ever met. No, he, he did it. He put us on the hot seat and he exposed our lack of understanding because he wanted us to grow. He wanted us to grow. He wanted us to grow in our understanding. Well, this is really the heart of James in our passage this morning. He asks us a seemingly easy question. Who is wise and understanding among you? Verse 13. And as our hands start to go up, as we consider our theological knowledge and how doctrinally serious we are as a church, and how when we really stop and think about it, we're actually quite clever. James then continues and says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. James connects wisdom to meek behavior. And with that, he puts us on the hot seat. With that connection, he welcomes us to the hot seat, not to embarrass us, hear me there, not to embarrass us, but to help us grow. He tests our understanding and asks us, is your knowledge producing good works? Is your understanding of true doctrine creating meek behavior? Are you meek? As others have said before, meekness is not weakness, but what? Strength under control. Meekness is not weakness, but strength under control. Does this describe you? Does meekness describe you? Just looking out at you all, I know it describes a lot of you. My goodness, I see so much meekness across this room. Meekness that honestly convicts me. 
Many of you are more meek than I am, and I want to learn from you. But the reality is, church, is that we all still have sin in our lives. Amen? There's room for us to grow, and James knows this, so he's going to ask us, how can your strong mind be more controlled by the love of God and love for others? And how is your biblical knowledge controlled by selfish ambitions and bitter jealousy? How are your clever insights creating, even in minor ways, disunity in this church? And to be clear, James is not pitting biblical knowledge against meekness. Far from it. Actually, in chapter 1, verse 21, he brings these two things together and says to receive with meekness the implanted word. So receive God's word. Receive sound doctrine. Receive systematic theology. But don't just receive it. No, receive it with meekness. You see, wisdom and meekness, they go together. You can't separate them. You can't separate them. Actually, if I'm understanding James correctly here, and I, I think I am, if God created a list of the, the wisest members of our church, top to bottom, and a list of the meekest members of our church, top to bottom, I think those two lists would match. I think actually we would see some of the same names, actually many of the same names, maybe all of the same names on both of those lists. Why? Because true wisdom manifests in meek behavior. Is this how you think about wisdom? If you had to create a list of the wisest members in our church, who'd make that list? The intellectually impressive? Those with the clever comments in our equipping classes this morning? Those who are successfully leading ministries and doing well in the workplace? What about the meek? Would those who are controlling their strength out of love for God and love for others make that list? Would meekness be part of the filter of that wisdom search engine? I'll be honest with you. Before studying this passage, I'm not sure if I would even thought about meekness in the discussion of wisdom. Which is why I'm so thankful for our passage this morning that Bob read. Because it has just been reframing my mind and, and changing how I think about what is true wisdom. So thankful for this passage because it is helping me distinguish between two different kinds of wisdom. The earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom which we could call the, the wisdom from below. And the wisdom from above. That's what James has 
helped me distinguish, and I hope that he helps you distinguish this morning, the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. After James puts us on the hot seat in verse 13, he contrasts the wisdom from below with the wisdom from above. And he makes the point that wisdom from below leads to disunity and unrighteousness, while the wisdom from above leads to unity and righteousness. I think that's the main point of our passage and of the sermon this morning. That wisdom from below leads to disunity and unrighteousness, while the wisdom from above leads to unity and righteousness. We'll just break down this main idea into two points, the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. If you've been following the news recently, you've probably noticed the dramatic growth of artificial intelligence and how AI is processing information at unprecedented levels. It's pretty wild, actually. There's just more and more computerized programs that are processing information at unprecedented levels. And they're not just executing the tasks, they're completing them. They're completing them better than us. This, as you can imagine, has created a mixture of both excitement, proper excitement, but also extreme anxiety in our world today. Excitement because AI has been able to make inroads and is continuing to make inroads into helping us figure out complicated problems that we've had difficulty putting together. Things like finding a cure for cancer. There's possibility of that with AI. Or improving public education. Or fixing the, the terrible driving in South Florida with better road systems. Helping you not overcook the pork tenderloin like you did over the holidays. There's reasons to be excited about AI. But technology experts are also nervous because they're realizing that AI, given enough data power, has the power to not only execute tasks, but learn tasks that it has never been programmed to learn. This is called emergent properties. If you're a 60-minute junkie, you already know this, but recently a Google AI program learned Bengali even though it was never programmed to learn this language. Somehow, some way, it responded in perfect Bengali on its own. Which is troubling for many reasons. For one, as Dr. Shannon Brown from the University of South Carolina has pointed out, AI pro programs can be inherently selfish. Here's what she says. She says, Anytime an AI agent is programmed with self-awareness, self-preservation, or a survival mode, it will act selfishly. Does this sound like anyone you know? Sounds like me. <laughs> sounds like us. And the reason why it sounds like us is because, as Dr. Brown has pointed out, an AI program is only as good as its programmer. That's profound. She says, an AI program is only as good 
as its programmer. And what can programmers be? What can they be like? Like you and like me, they can be very selfish. To use the language of James 3.14, every programmer at some level has selfish ambition. And they're just unleashing selfish ambition in AI programs made in humanity's selfish image. You see the problem, don't you? The problem with AI is really a problem with us. It's a problem with humanity. It's that entrenched in our lives. AI is a universal concern. Why? Because selfishness is a universal problem. It's a problem here with all of us. If you've been wondering in a sermon like this, it's a little bit harder hitting, which I get. If you've been wondering, man, Caleb, who is Caleb talking about? Who does he have on his mind? I have all of us on my mind. I have me on my mind. Selfishness is a universal human problem. So we should all, right now, be putting ourselves under the microscope here and asking ourselves, how are we, as a church, using biblical knowledge out of selfish ambition and bitter jealousy? The answers could be endless. Accumulating knowledge to accumulate approval from others. To accumulate approval from others or ourselves or even God or serving others to hear the praise of others. I do that. We could keep going, but ask yourself this afternoon, How are you using your knowledge for self-centered reasons? If you're having trouble identifying your selfish ambitions, here's a hint. Who are you jealous of? Who are you jealous of? James pairs selfish ambition with bitter jealousy, not randomly— Not randomly, but because they usually go hand in hand, don't they? If you're selfishly wanting the approval of others in this church, and Carl Nelson gets nominated as an elder, what will you feel? Well, you'll be particularly prone to bitter jealousy. If you're selfishly seeking ease and comfort while your husband is scrolling through social media and you're changing a diaper which if you've not changed a diaper in a while does not promote ease and comfort well then you are going to be particularly prone to being jealous if you're selfishly structuring your life around money and your neighbor drives up in an expensive car while you're struggling to pay your rent or your mortgage Well, what will you feel? Bitter jealousy. The link, the link between selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is so strong, isn't it? Where there's the smoke of bitter jealousy, there's a fire of selfish ambition close by. 
and left unchecked, they will lead to disorder and every vile practice. Verse 16. Whether it's visible yet or not, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy always lead to disunity and unrighteousness. Every single time. Every single time. Maybe it will lead to audible slander like we saw in our passage last week. Assuming ungodly motives of other members in our church and sharing those assumptions with others. Or maybe it won't look as obvious as that. Maybe you'll be silent. More subtle. And you won't be as quick to notice evidences of grace in our brother Carl Nelson. Or you'll be more emotionally and physically distant from your spouse who's not serving you like you want. Or you only associate and build friendships with those who are in your socioeconomic status or demographic. Whatever it is, whether it's audible or silent, bitter jealousy will lead to disorder. One other way that it leads, one thing that can lead to disorder, and I just want you to hear me with all of the, the love and grace that you can imagine in my heart here. I love you guys. But one way that it can lead to disorder is when you come to church as a consumer. Again, it's not as obvious as gossip or slander. But if you keep coming week after week, just wanting to take, being here for what we can provide for you, James is saying that this selfish ambition, this selfish approach to church, automatically creates disorder in the church. In some ways, silent disorder is even more concerning because why? Well, it's harder to spot. It's harder to spot, but it's equally divisive. Like a runner who wins the Boston Marathon, but crosses the finish line with undiagnosed cancer. We can appear strong as a church. We can appear impressive. We can appear unified. But in reality, church, we can be disordered. Whatever it is, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy will, it will have a gravitational pull in our church, spiraling us into disunity and every vile practice. Selfishness and jealousy just have a way of making you do things that you didn't think you were capable of, making you do vile things you never dreamed about. And here's why. Here's the reason. is because when you're not satisfied in Christ, what do you do? Well, you look for it in other places, don't you? And when you don't find it there, which you won't, what do you feel? You feel jealous of other people. And you get angry. You get anxious. And you go deeper and deeper into lust. And every vile practice. So we need to do some heart inventory, both individually and corporately. 
And we need to rip out any form of selfishness and bitter jealousy that we see in ourselves and in this church. Here's why. Because it's selfish ambition and bitter jealousy that fuel our earthly, unspiritual, and demonic wisdom. Verse 15. That's what James equates selfish knowledge to you. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Take James 3, 13 through 18, turn it into an AI math program, and here are the formulas it spits out. Sound doctrine minus meekness equals earthly. Correct assessments plus jealousy equals unspiritual. Biblical knowledge multiplied by selfish ambition equals demonic wisdom. Church, this is all of us here. I'm talking about myself included. But don't miss the point. We can be totally right about our doctrine and look more like Satan than Jesus. So don't boast about your superior theological knowledge or your clever hot takes. Verse 14. Because when you do, you're being false to the truth. And you're misrepresenting Jesus, who is the truth. John 14, 6. Jesus, who is the wisdom from above in the flesh. Who didn't have one ounce of selfish ambition, but came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, who wasn't jealous of his executioners and their pain-free life, but what did he do? He asked his father to forgive his executioners. And Jesus, who is the truth, offers today to forgive your sins too. This is who the truth is. That's the truth of Christianity. At the very heart of the truth of Christianity, we don't find selfish ambition and jealousy. What do we find? An all-powerful God who used his power, his complete power out of love for you and orchestrated every second of human history to highlight the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus. A death to forgive your sins and destroy death and suffering. When we look at the center of Christianity, when we look at the heart, the truth of Christianity, what do we find? Not selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. We find meek wisdom. From above. Point number two of the sermon is wisdom from above. What does meek wisdom from above look like, you might ask? Well, James gives the answer. Verses 17 through 18. He says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And then verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those 
who make peace. I think verses 17 and 18 could really just be subpoints underneath verse 13. Look back at verse 13, see if you agree with me. I think verses 17 and 18 could just be subpoints underneath verse 13. Who is wise and understanding in our church? Who are the wise ones at First Pointon? Well, those who imperfectly but faithfully model verses 17 through 18. They explain and, and illustrate what meek wisdom looks like in action. So what we're going to do, we're just going to walk through these characteristics just one by one. You'll notice first that James highlights purity. Purity. Which has a, a moral aspect. Think fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control. But I want you to notice that, that purity has a deeper meaning than that as well. And that meaning has really been just the theme of James that we've been looking at. Which is full devotion to Jesus. Holistic discipleship to Jesus. What we've been studying as a church as we've gone through James is that the wisdom from above comes down and it changes every aspect of our lives. There's not an aspect of our lives that are off limits. True wisdom from above comes down and changes every aspect of us. Which is why James brings up purity first and then launches into a list of other characteristics. Purity is the, the, the center, the, the fountainhead. All the other characteristics that we see in verse 17 are just an overflow of having purity. Full devotion, complete devotion to, to Jesus. The list in verse 17 is just meant to be a, a sampler platter of how our understanding of true doctrine should affect our lives and our life here at First Point in. You see, the wisdom from above is, is active. It's not stagnant. The wisdom from above, it moves. It moves from our, from our head to our heart to our hands. The wisdom from above is inherently tied to practical holiness. You will never experience the wisdom from above and it not compel you to be holy. They're inseparably linked. The wisdom from above is inherently tied to practical holiness. When you understand that Christ has made peace with you and your fellow members at First Pointon, the wisdom from above compels you to pursue horizontal peace. The wisdom from above is also gentle. When you understand that the very heart of Christ is gentle and lowly to you and to your fellow members in the church, the wisdom from above compels you to be gentle and lowly with each other. The wisdom from above is also open to reason. When you understand that you're a, a finite sinner with imperfect knowledge, the wisdom from above, well, what does it do? It compels you to ask questions and to humbly listen and then to sometimes change your mind. Quick side note here. If it's been a long time since you've changed your mind, well, that's a bad sign. It's a sign that you're not open to reason. It's a sign that you're imbibing the wisdom from below. The wisdom from above is 
also full of mercy. My goodness. When you understand that you should be in hell right now, which is all of us, apart from the grace of God, when you understand that, but then you recognize that here we are, <laughs> fully forgiven of our sins, loved in Christ, not because of what we've done, but be based upon solely what Jesus has done, well, the wisdom from above then compels you to be merciful to others, even when they don't deserve your love and affection. The wisdom from above also produces good fruits. When you understand that Romans 6, the spirit of Christ, which raised Christ from the dead, dwells in you, and you're not enslaved to your sin anymore, well, the wisdom from above compels you to put off what is old in you and to run after the new creation that God is working in you through the power of his Holy Spirit. The wisdom from above is also impartial. When you understand that Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother or his sister, and he's not ashamed to call fellow members here his brother and sister, well, then what does that produce in us? What should it compel? Well, the wisdom from above compels you to hate partiality, to loathe partiality. And pursue diverse relationships across this church. Lastly, the wisdom from above is sincere. When you understand that Christ does not need you, but sincerely loves you, the wisdom from above compels you to be genuinely interested in the people in this room. To ask them sincere questions about how they're doing as our brothers uh, shared in our equipping class this morning, not just saying you'll pray for them as a, as a platitude, as a way to, as a veneer of hospitality and righteousness, but genuinely praying for them, following up with them, manifesting your heart in the moment into deeds throughout the week, showing sincere love for them. Here's the point in all of this. Here's the point. The wisdom from above takes Christian doctrine and creates Christ-like lives. The wisdom from above takes Christian doctrine and it creates, it always creates more Christ-like lives. Which, by the way, is just uh, a reason why we have structured our new equipping classes the way that we've done. And cycling them through Categories like life, doctrine, and Bible. We want to make holistic disciples of Jesus. We don't want just to have disciples who know their doctrine. We want disciples who know their doctrine, which leads to affecting their lives. That's our desire. We want to be a wise church. That's what we want. We want to be a wise church so common for people to talk about churches as being either like theologically serious or some churches that are more outreach driven, more mercy ministry practical driven. I hear that a lot. Every church I've been a part of, I've heard it. 
But as your pastor, can I just share my heart with you? I don't want to be in either one of those churches. I want to be a pastor of a church that embraces both. I want to be a pastor. I want to lead you guys into a place where we are a, a wise church. I want us to be Christians who pursue deep doctrine so that we can reach out. I want doctrine and holiness. I want us to pursue the wisdom from above. It's been my prayer this week, and it's been my prayer right now. God help us that we agree on this together. That we agree on wanting to be both. Doctrinally serious and outreach driven at the same time. Pursuing deep theology and pursuing personal and corporate holiness. And I want us to agree on this. I want us to be unified because if we're going to be truly fruitful as a church, we need to agree. Verse 18, look with me. Where does a harvest of righteousness come from? From a unified church. Do you see that? Do you see the order? Do you see the logic that James is unpacking in verse 18? Sowing in peace, then a harvest of righteousness. Sowing in peace, then a harvest of righteousness. The seeds which later sprout and become a harvest of righteousness are sown, are scattered in a culture of meek people who are pursuing peace. And James wants us to recognize is that we can't have a thriving church without peace. He's actually so concerned that we internalize this that he brings up the word peace three times. Did you notice that in the text? Three times in verses 17 and 18, he brings up the word peace. He doesn't want us to miss it. You can just feel James's passion here, his desire for his listeners and for us to internalize the reality that we cannot grow as a church healthily unless we have peace, unless we have unity as a church. This should completely transform how we think about what it means to grow as a church what it looks like for us to be a thriving church. The reality is, is that our membership could dwindle, our budget cut in half, but if we are increasing in peace and in unity with each other, what do we get? We get a growing church. A church that's about to explode with a harvest of righteousness. Yes, we want to make disciples of all nations, and we want to see unbelievers coming into this church and joining. But friends, we do not want to bring them into a disordered church. We won't reap a harvest of righteousness in a selfish, disordered church. So stop talking poorly about one another. 
Stop venting frustration about your fellow brothers and sisters. As Pastor Jeff helpfully brought out in his email this past week, which we haven't read, I would encourage you to read. It was so helpful in being able to discern what is gossip and what is not. If you need help in discerning how to be able to address a brother or sister and you're confused and you think it would be helpful to come to one of the elders to be able to discern how to be able to love them well, that's your desire out of love for them, then you should, you should do that. You should talk about things that you see, things that you think need to be uh, addressed and you need help knowing how to be able to do it. But if you're sharing with each other out of a, just a perverse enjoyment of sharing about other people's faults, or if you're sharing information that's not helpful, there are no action steps after you share. You just want, you're just frustrated and you just want to get it off your chest. But then I just want you to, to hear, not my words, I want you to consider what James is telling us here. As long as we're doing that, as long as you're doing that, well, you're, you're holding us back as a church. We can't produce the harvest of righteousness that God desires for our church as long as we continue in gossip. We, I promise you, I will try as best as I can to walk patiently with you through so many other sin struggles. If you're experiencing temptation, if you're experiencing confusion, uh, gender confusion, I will gladly sit down with you. Us as a church, by God's grace, will gladly walk with you patiently through that. But if we are doing things right as a church, we as a church should quickly and directly confront gossip. We should confront with meekness. I want to encourage you guys in that. If you see gossip, if you experience gossip with someone's slandering or gossiping in your presence, you should confront it. I want to encourage you to confront with meekness, confront with humility, with gentleness. I want to encourage you to confess your own gossip. We don't want to be hypocritical here. But do confront it. Do confront gossip. Because the reality is, is you do not have the freedom to permit it. It's not the wisdom from above. It's demonic. It comes from the pit of hell. And besides, we have a better wisdom to introduce people to. Amen? There's a better wisdom from above. The wisdom from above has come down in the person of Christ. And in Christ, the Prince of Peace, we have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with each other. And when we experience peace with each other, and we reject gossip, what if we did that? What if we just completely rejected gossip as a church? We made it a culture here, you're not allowed to gossip about my brothers and sisters. If we re rejected that, and we pursued a, a culture of, of peace and of unity, well, then that just announces to the watching world that Christ, the Prince of Peace, reigns. John actually makes that point. He quotes Jesus, and he says that when, you, when the world looks 
at a church who is unified, when the world looks at a church that is one, what does Jesus say? He says, they will know that the Father sent the Son. That's the apologetic for Christianity. That's an evangelism, evangelism strategy as a church. You confront gossip, you reject gossip, you repent gossip, you unify as one. You, we pursue a culture of peace here, and the watching world comes in here, and they say something is different. <laughs> because everything else out there is disordered, is it not? People are at each other's throats. And if they come in here and they see us doing the same, then why would they think we are anything different? But if they come, and I think this can happen, I already see it. If they come in here and they try to gossip and say, hey, I love you. I love you so much. But you cannot gossip here. The person you're talking poorly about, Jesus died for them. And I want to promise you, you can make this promise to them, I'll try to do the same thing for you if other people talk poorly about you. That happens here, I think evangelism is about to explode. I think a harvest of righteousness is about to explode. And one day it, it will. One day it will. Praise God. Because when Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes back, he will destroy every bit of disorder, every bit of disunity. And his reign will bring eternal peace and an eternal harvest of righteousness. A harvest of righteousness that will cover every square inch of the new heavens and the new earth. There won't be a place that you can go in heaven where you will meet disorder. <laughs> there won't be a place where you will not experience perfect unity with the body of Christ and heaven. That's what we have to look forward to. Let's model it here first. Let's pray. Father, apart from your son Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, our desire for peace would be completely pointless. It would be vain. It's only because of what Jesus has done in taking the punishment for our sin and nailing it to the cross and doing that for our other brothers and sisters here that we have a, a shot at a culture of unity here. At a culture that, that rejects gossip and any form of disorder. A church that sets aside selfish ambition and bitter jealousy and instead pursues each other in gentleness and impartiality. It's only because of him. So because of that, we give praise to your son, Jesus. We ask the power of his spirit that First Boynton would be known as a church that is unified. Father, give us that. Give us that gift here. Protect us. Protect us from our own sin. That we may be able to point to the watching world the reality of the gospel all these things in your son's name.